Well, as I mentioned to you this morning, um, there's a couple ways that you can approach the, the topic of, of uh, marriage and divorce in light of discipleship. And uh, as I also mentioned, you've seen how I've chosen to approach it, try to cover all of it in, in four messages. Um, but, but even in that, there, because of the crookedness of, of sin and because of all of the, the, the specifics and the what-ifs, knowing that it is a topic that, that touches people deeply, um, knowing that it is, it's a topic that, that is, um, is debated, uh, as I said, I, I would have no idea how many pages have been written on the topic over the, over the years. Uh, you know, I, I don't advise you to do it right now while you're listening to me, but if you Google, I'm looking at Jason Spear back there, our old IT guy, teasing him. Um, if you would Google, there's probably, who knows, how many books that would, that would come up on the, on, on the, on the topic. So tonight, um, I wanted to take some time while we had it and answer some questions that I've asked myself uh, from Scripture, and I've also been asked as a pastor, some by you, since we since we started the series. The majority I've, I've asked myself, um, and uh, my I'm trying to do the same thing you're trying to do, which is just get it right and see what God says in the Word, and then try to take that and and apply it rightly to 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 my own life. Um, if you have a question, as I said, that I don't cover in the series or tonight. Um, if you want to email that to me or come and ask me specifically, I'll try to, uh, to answer it. Um, but you probably realize that, um, that, that everything's not nice and neat and, and clean. And, and while we want to make everything cut and, and dry, God's Word is absolutely clear. His, his commands are, are absolutely clear. His principles are absolutely clear. It, it, the problem comes when you try to apply it in a, in a sin-cursed Sin-cursed world. And when you come to a situation like that, let me just begin this way. Um, just let God speak and, and leave it there. Be okay with whatever, whatever God says. Um, don't try to fill in the gaps as uncomfortable as that, as that may be. Um, as much as you want a reconciled answer. Um, the Bible is sufficient. And the Bible says that everything that you and I need for... For life and godliness is provided in the text of Scripture. So if God wanted to make it nice, neat, and clean, he, he would have. <laughs> um, and you need to be okay with that. You need to be okay, as I am okay, that there are certain things that God understands that I don't. I'm totally fine with God knowing things and being able to reconcile things. For instance, the sovereignty of God and responsibility of man, or how you apply certain passages. Sanctification, whose responsibility is it? Who's responsible for it, you or God? And the answer is yes. Um, how do you reconcile that? I don't know, um, but the Lord does. But where the Bible speaks of sovereignty, I will speak. And where it speaks of responsibility, I will speak. And where it speaks about divorce and remarriage, that's where we want to speak as, as well. And, you, and you, just, you just be okay with that. So we'll begin with some, some questions. I'll put the questions up here. As, here's the first one. It's a question that, that, that I've had. It's a, it's a question that's been, an, uh, been asked to me. I've heard the Bible teaches no divorce and no remarriage, period, ever. 
But you've read passages that seem to say otherwise. What, what do I do with that? And I, I guess I would say pray. I mean, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> what do you do with that? It's, it's in the, it's in the text. I mean, all you can do is try to make sense out of, out of the pages that, the passages that God gives in the Bible and, and to do so with fear and, and trepidation. Um, I had 80 pages, uh, for this morning's sermon alone, typewritten pages. I think I went back and I mean, I'm understand, trying to understand, well, well, if God says he writes Israel uh, a certificate of divorcement, but not Judah, I mean, how does he make an everlasting covenant with Israel, but then say he divorces them? Well, it's the ten tribes in the north, and, and then that Judah is the two tribes in the south, and he never divorces Judah, but he does... He does Israel, and then those ten tribes are, are assimilated in the, in the Gentile territory, but enough of them uh, trickle down to Jerusalem, to the southern kingdom, and so the whole twelve tribes are, are, uh, are exhibited there, because I ask the question, how can, how can that, 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 that be? And, and I feel the weight of, of speaking on God's behalf, and, and also know that I'm influencing others. And the Bible says... Don't let many of you desire to be teachers because you'll, you'll receive a stricter judgment. So I, I surely don't want to, I don't want to get it wrong. But you probably are aware that there are four general positions on divorce and, and remarriage. Divorce anytime, anywhere, and remarriage the same. Now, no restrictions. Now, that's, that's the world's position or society's position. And I would say no, no true Christian holds that, that position, at least none that that I know of, and and if if they would, then then that would be that would be pretty troubling. So divorce anytime, anywhere, and remarriage the same. Position two, no divorce, no remarriage ever. Period, under any circumstances. Three, divorce is permitted, but no remarriage. So when Matthew nineteen says that you are able to give a writ of divorcement for immorality that stops there. You can give a writ of divorcement, but you're not permitted to remarry unless the person dies. So that's, that's the third general position. And then the fourth position, divorce is permitted. It's not commanded. It's permissible for adultery and abandonment, spiritual abandonment. And remarriage is assumed in those cases. Those are the four general positions. And there are, there are good men that, that, who take some differing positions. And, and some of those, not all of them, some of those positions out of those four would fit within the bounds of Scripture and some would not. And um, those that don't add to Scripture or take away from it, I'm, I'm fine with leaving that to, to your conscience. But I'm required to draw conclusions myself. As a believer, like you are, and I'm obviously required to draw conclusions as a as a preacher of uh, of God's word, and so we're all trying to do the same thing and and honor that. I take the position that marriage is honorable and not to be broken, and and if it is, then it should not be your doing. Um, if there is unrepentant adultery, then after pursuit, divorce is permitted. And if it's permitted, then remarriage is also permitted. Those who do are not adulterers. I think that's what Jesus is saying in, in Matthew 19. Those who divorce and remarry for any other situation are adulterers and should be called to, uh, 
called to repent. That's a summary of the of the best angles that that I can work from uh, from Scripture. So number two, here's a question that I've asked and that I've received. Doesn't the exception clause in Matthew 19 speak about the betrothal period? When Jesus says in Matthew 19, why don't you go ahead and turn there, Matthew 19. In verse 9, when Jesus says, I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Is that the betrothal period? Is the, is the finding of immorality between the promise to marry and the actual covenant ceremony? Like when Joseph sought to put Mary away when he thought that she'd been immoral. Because they were betrothed. The ceremony hadn't taken place yet. Is this, is Jesus talking about the, the betrothal period? I don't think Jesus is speaking only about the betrothal period because of the passages that we looked at this morning for, for one, where God divorces Israel or gives Israel rid of divorcement for, for adultery. That wasn't the betrothal period. But some take this position, and the evidence is because of what the disciples say next. Look at verse 10. The disciples said, if the relationship between a man and his wife is like that, it's better not to marry. Um, so they're obviously pretty shocked at Jesus' position. But he said to them, not, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given, the gift of singleness. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And then there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the of the kingdom. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. And that will probably be clearer once you get to 1 Corinthians 7, because it's really what the first few passages, few verses talk about. So Jesus says there are those who have the gift of singleness... And the gift of singleness is no desire for, for marriage and their immorality doesn't overtake you. You're not burning in, in lust. You're not longing to be married and because it's un, marriage is, you're, you're unfulfilled, the, the intimate desires that God naturally gives because they're unfulfilled, because you're not married, then you would, you would fall to adultery or, or immorality. And Jesus says not everyone can, you know, has that, has that gift. So some take the position because of this shock and what Jesus says next that this is, this must be the betrothal period, but, but that's an argument from, from reaction and, and not textual. I mean, it's just as possible they reacted that way because they heard Jesus saying you're an adulterer if you divorce and remarry except when immor- unrepentant immorality takes place because divorce was so common among the Jews, and had been for a long time in specific to Malachi. So the word that Jesus uses here, I'm sure you're aware, those of you who study this, that matters to you, verse 9, the word for immorality is, is a general word. It's, it's the word pornea. It's where we get pornography. It's, it's a general reference to, 
to sexual sins. It includes adultery, it includes premarital sex, it includes incest, it includes homosexuality and bestiality. All of those break the monogamous nature of the, of the marriage relationship. It's not the same word for adultery. Um, and in Matthew 15, 19, those two words are used in the same passage. So this, this is, there's only three times pornea is used in Matthew in chapter 5, chapter 15, and chapter 19. Two of those have to do with this exception passage. And um, Matthew 15 clearly distinguishes adultery from, from pornea. So if pornea, which is, a, which is a word that means sexual sin, during, if that was during the betrothal period, then it would mean that Jesus is saying if an engagement was broken for any reason other than immorality, then a person could not marry anyone else or else they would be in adultery. I mean, if Jesus was talking about the betrothal period, then adultery is assigned to marrying another after the betrothal period. You follow what I'm saying? So anyone who broke off an engagement for any reason other than sexual sin must remain unmarried, according to Jesus, according to that interpretation, or if they don't, then they're adulterers. And if that's the position, then, then we should church discipline anyone who breaks off an engagement and who marries a, a, another person. And I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I don't think it's applied that, that strictly. It's possible but I don't think it's, it's applied that, that strictly. I think there are two things about divorce in Jewish life that may be helpful to understand um, of also why the shock comes. Divorce in Jewish life presupposed remarriage, according to Deuteronomy 24. In fact, the certificate of divorcement that was given to the wife said, quote, you are free to marry any man. It assumed, divorce assumed remarriage. I mean, that's the whole purpose of giving her the writ of divorcement. So if she remarries, she's not going to be stoned as an adulteress because she has this, she has this piece of paper. So divorce in Jewish life presupposed that remarriage would, would take place. I think the other thing that's interesting is that, that Jews understood the eighth commandment or the, the, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Different from 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 what you you and I do. They they thought uh, it was more about stealing. You don't want to you don't want to steal another man's wife. It it wasn't primarily about infidelity or the sanctity of marriage, which is why Jesus corrects them. It's more about property rights. This woman is my property, and and you shouldn't take her. That's wrong. You're stealing, not not faithfulness. So that's why Jesus. Corrects them in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard, but I say to you, if a man lusts in his heart, he's already committed adultery in his heart. That was shocking, not just because the law was applied internally to desires as well as externally, but the mention of lust, the mention of, of, of applying this commandment to, to fidelity, which is why the Apostle Paul talks about the the requirement for an elder to be a one-woman man, it's, it's all connected together. So the commandment that Jesus says is about the sanctity of, of marriage and the purity of the relationship, not necessarily taking something from, you know, from someone else. So 
Um, I don't think that it applies to the to the betrothal period. That is the position of, of good men, John MacArthur or uh, John Piper being being one of them. And when Piper is nailed down to say, what does verse nine mean? Whenever so, that means you're going to have to apply this to the betrothal period, meaning that you can only remarry if the engagement is broken for immorality. He says, well, you're free to remarry because that would be a little divorce, not a big divorce after. And I would say to my brother who's much wiser and smarter than I am, show me that in the text. There's no little divorce or, or big divorce. Um, and I understand why he does it. He, he, he wants to uphold the sanctity of marriage. It's it, the covenant. It, it's It's vital. It's... It is being trampled on, so I understand the heart, but I have to leave it to what what Scripture says. So here's a here's another one. This one's kind of easy, uh, but asked often. What's the difference between fornication and adultery? A fornication is sexual sin by an unmarried person. Just simply, an adultery is sexual sin by someone who who is married. The law applies to lust in the heart. So you're guilty of breaking the law, breaking God's law. You're guilty before God, even by the desires in your heart. But desiring someone in your heart or looking upon someone with lust is not exactly the same as committing the physical act. I mean, sometimes we try to, to like level these sins, these sins out. Everyone is guilty before God, period even from a heart level. But getting angry at someone, in God's eyes, is not equated with actually killing them. You understand what I'm saying? So, guilt happens at the heart level, but it is a greater guilt and greater sin, a greater capacity, greater, greater significance, whenever the heart then turns into thoughts and meditations and then turns into action that's, that's there. So here's a significant question that, that I had to wrestle through. Just how does immorality undo what God has joined? I, I believe very strongly that God, what God says is true, that he joins the two into, into one. So how does immorality undo that? I mean, where Jesus says here, except for immorality... Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery, meaning that, that the other person doesn't, isn't considered an adulterer. How does that, how does that practically take place? If they're joined, if the two become one and God doesn't see them as two anymore, God sees them as one. And, and that one, a party to that one joins themselves to, to, to another, how can that be undone? I mean, if creation is the basis of marriage and the bond of marriage is cleaving, you leave and you cleave, you press together toward each other and you become one flesh in the union that God forms, then how can anything change that? Or, or better, is there anything that can alter that? Well, I, I, would, I would have to conclude that, that immorality alone... Um, can't. I mean, which is which is why I I define the context of except immorality that that Jesus is is speaking as a as someone who's unrepentant and they're in the pursuit of a of another person. 
I would, I would not place somebody under church discipline if they divorce for immorality, a one-night stand, or however you want to say that, even if the person was, was repentant, because that's a possibility. It fits a possibility with, with, within the text. But it seems the example that God gives for a Christian, and that Jesus calls disciples to pursue this design prior to, to creation, prior to the fall, implies more than, 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 a, than an individual sin. It implies that the person is, is unrepentant and still pursuing like Israel did. And if Israel would have repented, then, then God would have forgiven them and, and take them, taken them back if Israel had repented, which is obviously the big question that everybody asks. Well, how do I know whether they're repentant or not? And and I can't answer that. Only God can see the heart. So it's very carefully, and it's after a really, really long period of time when, as Spurgeon said, they become as well known for their repentance as they were for their sin, then maybe. Um, I can remember MacArthur telling the story of, of a man who fell in ministry, and um, he left his wife, he left his children, he left... He just threw everything away and pursued this other woman and then, you know, six months later or whatever, came back and set up a meeting with John and said, I just got great news. God's forgiven me. I've repented. And the Lord's forgiven me. And this is just wonderful. And John's response to him is, well, we'll see. And the man was almost offended. He said, you know, I mean, what do you mean? I mean, I told you God's forgiven me. Meaning, you need to forgive me too. You should be excited about this. And and John said, "Well, you know, well, we'll see. I mean, you you blew through the 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 your marriage covenant. The you blew through the the commitment that you made to your own children. You blew through the commitment that you made to Christ in His church. You trampled under the testimony of of the Lord. You threw all of that away. You're placed under church discipline. You refused to repent even then." And now you come and I'm just supposed to believe your words? I mean, we'll see. If fruits are born of repentance, and if that is evident, then I will rejoice. Um, God makes the final judgment, but the, but the functional judgment is based on what we see in, in, in life. So the only thing we have to go on, I think, is the boundaries of Scripture. And I start there and I start asking some questions about what joins people in, into one. Well... From creation, they're made male and female, so that knocks out same-sex marriage, obviously, as they like to call it. Second is the cleaving together, which is turning from one family toward a spouse and then pressing into them. Cleaving is not just leaving your parents. It's, it's a one-heart pursuit to where you press in with two minds become one, two wills become one, two desires become one. You're continually cleaving. You're continually pressing Together, And then third is the physical component. Clearly the two become one in that act. And then fourth is the, is the covenant, the promise that's made. Malachi says that the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, whom you become faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So there's the, the covenant. So what joins them? Creation. Male and female, the cleaving, you choose a spouse to marry and you join your life with theirs, the covenant, you make the vow, and then the consummation, you, you take her. The proof of oneness is, 
If it's normal, is procreation. A baby comes from that union. That's the fruit of the indivisible union. Earthly, the earthly purpose for marriage is your sanctification. Marriage is not for your happiness only. It's for your holiness. And so the very things about your spouse that really get on your nerves, God has ordained to sanctify you. And all of God's women said, Amen. It's for your sanctification, it's for your companionship, it's for your enjoyment, it's also for advancing the kingdom. The eternal purpose is the mirror of the gospel, Christ and His church. So the promise joins in, in, in the will and, and in, under the law, the pressing joins, in the, the cleaving joins in the pursuing in the heart, the physical union joins emotionally, physically, and then God joins divinely. So if that's what joins a person into one in God's eyes, and one person instead of two, and he's a witness to all four of those things, then what undoes that other than death is the question that I, that I ask. How's the promise they make, the pressing together, the pleasure they enjoy, that make them one flex? How's that affected by pornea or by immorality? I mean, that's the crux of the, of the matter. And I would say adultery corrupts all of that. Immorality corrupts all of that. But the unrepentant part is the, is, is the, relates to the cleaving or the pressing together. And the immorality breaks the promise that you made. It divides an indivisible number. The third party for two become one. So there's a numerical deformity. You break the promise. You break the physical union. And you begin to press, you, you cease pressing together in your marriage and you pursue or you press or attach to, to, another, to another person. And unless that stops and is repented of, then the, then the original union cannot continue. It's impossible to continue. So there's no oneness and promise in heart, physically or spiritually. So that breaks the union. And it seems so in... In God's eyes as, as well. So the next question comes, can, can adultery be overcome in a, in a relationship? And the answer to that is theoretically yes. Um, but it's really, really hard. Immorality in marriage is sin. Sin can be repented of. Sin can be forgiven. The remembrance of sin can be taken away. You have to take the same parts that were violated and decouple them from the parasite, which is the third party in the marriage, and then recouple them to the marriage partner. Sex must cease, pursuit must cease, cleaving to your wife or your husband must ensue. The promise that was broken must be repented of and a new promise made. And the last part, obviously, is the hardest part for the offended party because that involves trust. And forgiveness and trust are not the same, are not the same thing. A lot of people confuse the command to forgive as if that means forget, and that's not the case. And also confuse it as if it means to trust immediately, and that's also not the case. I, the example I gave you with, with, with John. So that's the hardest part, to rebuild and all of that. The promise, the promise that you make to another person functions by, by your trusting in that promise. You trust in their words. Or another way to say it, you're able to put weight on them, 
or else that they're just they're just words. Uh, a promise is made by one person, and for it to mean anything to another person, for it to matter, it they have to trust it, to put weight in it. And you think of God's promises, which never fail. By the way, God makes a promise. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But that doesn't mean anything until you trust it, until you put weight on it. It's a a statement. You have to put weight on it, and you have to trust it. Human promises are frail. They're not like God's, but they work in the same way. So a person makes a promise, the other trusts in it, and then that, that bears fruit. So trust, where a promise has been broken, must be must be re-earned. Fidelity has to be proven. And it's going to take time and and work if if it's possible. But it is possible. Here's a question that I get regularly. If I've divorced and remarried or committed adultery, how does God see me? Am I living in sin as a perpetual adulterer? Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I think this gives the answer. And I think the answer is no. God does not view you as living in perpetual adultery if you've repented. If you've not repented, then you remain in your sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. Now watch the terms and watch what God calls people. This is how God sees them. How does God see people? Verse 9. Paul says, I wrote in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did it not at all mean with immoral people of this world. Or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. So here... People are called idolaters and drunkards. And they're under God's judgment. Verse 11, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard. So here's someone who professes to be a Christian, but they're, they're more marked by their lifestyle, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging the outsiders? It's not the church's job to judge the world. Do not judge those, do you not judge those who are within the church? Yes, you should. But those who are outside, God judges. So remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So you're to call sin, sin within the church and you're to practice church discipline. But, but the question is, how does God see them? And God sees them as idolaters and as drunkards. They're, they're, these are unrepentant people. Now look at 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Here's the passage about suing a brother. And then verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And verse 11, such were, past tense, some of you. 
but you now, you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our, of our God. So that means you were seen by God as this and known as this, but you're not anymore. Why? Because you were washed. You're forgiven. You're sanctified positionally. You're, you're in Christ. You're, you're viewed as a saint. You're justified in Jesus Christ and in, the, and in the Spirit. So I would say if you've repented, no, you're not viewed as living in, in perpetual adultery. Adultery is a sin. And if that sin marks your life, then you're known by, by how you live your life. You're known by the fruit that you bear. And if that ceases and you've repented of that, you've been washed by Jesus, then you are no longer viewed by God in that way. You can also think of what Paul says when he describes his own testimony in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. That's, that's as an apostle. And listen to verse 13. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in, in unbelief. Paul says, that's what I was known as because that's what I did. And even though he considers himself chief of sinners, Paul considers himself a forgiven sinner. Seven. Can I divorce and not remarry as a Christian and be free from adultery? Uh, listen to next week's sermon. This is a hot-button topic today, and important. What about abuse, physical or any other kind? Is that grounds for, for divorce? Well, I would surely say it's grounds for, for separation. And if it's sexual abuse, then, then yes. Uh, turn to Romans 13. Now, Jesus says, except for immorality. So he qualifies the divorce. So you're not going to find the answer in Matthew 19. You're going to have to go to 1 Corinthians 7 and apply some scripture. But here's the first place that I would go is when somebody asks me this, this question. Romans 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they will have opposed, they who oppose will receive condemnation upon themselves from the authorities. For rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. The reason that you and I both look at our speedometers whenever the state trooper goes by is because we have bad behavior a lot of times. You don't have any reason to fear the authorities. Do what is good and you will have praise in the same. For it is a minister of God. The authorities that God has established is a minister of God. For you, for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. And who gave him the sword? God did. For it is a minister of God, an avenger. 
who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So God commands you to do that as a believer, but also because they're going to bring the hammer down on you, and God gave them the the hammer. You remember when we talked about how the Lord at times in the Scripture judges immediately. Sodom and Gomorrah, the flood. There are certain things that are so significant that God felt the need to bring judgment right now. And then there are other times, there are other things that God brings judgment through the law. The law is, is, is given by God to regulate and to punish evildoers. And then there are others that there are just natural consequences that come. However God chooses to bring judgment doesn't make it right or wrong. Because God waits or because God doesn't strike you with a lightning bolt from heaven... Whenever you blaspheme, it doesn't mean blaspheming is is not bad. It's God's mercy. And one of the ways that God has chosen to judge is through the law courts. And so Romans 13 states that God has ordained the authorities, and so anything against the law is to be dealt with by the law. So if you're being physically abused or laws are being broken, it is not unscriptural or unspiritual to turn to the authorities. And 1 Corinthians 6 that we read before is usually appealed to. Well, they're in the world, and so they're not believers, so we need to handle it in, in inside the church. But, but Romans 13 clearly says that this is part of God's what God has ordained. I would say it's just the opposite, because God's ordained them. And then you need to trust the Lord and, and His overworking even if the authorities are, are wicked. And if that's the case, then you, if there's some law that's being broken, then you should go to the police and let God deal with the sin through, through the law, which would require a separation, obviously. Um, if they're convicted, you get out of trouble, you'd have immediate danger, and if they're, if they're convicted and they're put in jail, then there's obviously a a process of separation where you can evaluate um, whether they're repentant or not. And then obviously that would, in, that would require other things within the church, Matthew 18 and church discipline, which is then going to put it into 1 Corinthians 7 of whether you're dealing with a believer or, or not, depending upon how they, how they respond. Here's the final one. Why does it seem like the church is all over the place on the topic? And some make divorce out to be a separate category sin. Well, I think it's the same reasons that we've already given. Um, I I get this question a lot. I mean, why are there so many different positions? Why can't Christians just agree on everything? we have good brothers and sisters in here tonight that love Jesus and want to honor the Word, and I am 100% sure as I'm standing here breathing, there are probably differing positions on, on certain things. The fall brought hard hearts, and hard hearts lead to divorce, and so people come to Christ with messed up lives and scars from the fall, and 1 Corinthians 7 really is a commentary on how to how to deal with that and sinful life is messy. That's, that's why there's, there are different positions. And so, why are some churches all over the place? 
I, just, I would say some obvious things. They've never been taught how to interpret the Bible. Some, um, some just flatten everything out. And um, I don't understand progressive revelation, for, for instance. Um, some have a personal dog in the fight. They don't want to be convicted of their own sin or somebody has hurt them or a family member, so that becomes an issue for them. Um, some take positions because they're afraid if they don't close up every seeming loophole or answer every possible question and give people wiggle room, then they're going to wiggle. And so as a preacher, as a church, you need to lock up the fence as tight as possible. They're like the Jews that, here's the law and we're going to build a fence around the law. Because we don't even want to get close to the law to even come close to breaking it. So you put a, put a fence around the fence. Um, some sadly want approval by the world and think that by seeming culturally reasonable, then they'll win more people to Jesus if they lower the standard. And it does exactly the opposite. It, it cuts people off from the very grace and mercy that, that they need. But there is a danger... To make divorce unlike, or adultery unlike any other sin. There's also a danger of not making it sin at all. And God, God holds out both. Sin is utterly sinful. But grace is greater than all of my sin. Thanks be to God. So. Uh, what if I was divorced prior to salvation? Can I remarry? What if I'm married to an unbeliever now? Should I stay or leave? Both of those will, will be next week. And again, if you have a specific question or you have a follow-up question, I'm happy to hear it and um, happy to share in, in, any, in any way possible.